Would you open God's precious holy word to Leviticus 11? For from chapters 11 through 15, we'll be looking at this kind of subject, what's clean and what's unclean. And there are ways for us to consider how this applies to us today. And what I'm going to do is I'll, I'll read through, there are a lot of verses here. I'm just going to read through and at the very end, make a few comments and draw this together in application, hopefully to, to our lives today. The clean and the unclean. This has to do with animals and it starts with the land animals. Now let me say right off the bat, some of these animals that are listed come from Hebrew words that are difficult to translate. You get an idea of what kind of animal, but you don't know exactly how to completely identify the animal. And my methodology is to generally depend on the earliest writing rabbi because he's closest and that would be in the pre-Christian era he's closest to the time when Hebrew was an active language so from that perspective we'll, we'll see things that, that may be a little confusing names of animals and so forth but we do the best we can do alright here we go Yahweh spoke to Moses and to Aaron. This is the first time that he has spoken like this to both of them together. To say to them, speak to the sons of Israel saying, these are the creatures that you may eat among all the animals on earth. Any animal that has a cloven hoof that is completely split into double hooves and which brings up its cud, that one you may eat. But these you shall not eat among those that bring up the cud and those that have a cloven hoof, the camel. Because it brings up its cud, it does not have a completely cloven hoof. It's unclean for you. The hyrax, don't ask me. Because it, those are, those are expensive, by the way, if you can find one, I don't know. Because it brings up its cud, but will not have a completely cloven hoof, it is unclean for you. And the hair, because it brings up its cud and does not have a completely cloven hoof, it's unclean for you. There's a lot of, lot of debate over, is that how a rabbit or hare is that? Well, whatever it was in the days when Moses wrote it, they knew it and it was an unclean thing for them. And I'm glad that we can say that we don't have to eat hare. All right. <laughs> And the pig, because it has a cloven hoof, completely split, will not regurgitate its cud. It is unclean for you. You shall not eat of their flesh. And you shall not touch their carcasses. They're unclean for you. So those were the land animals. Then the water animals go like this. Among all the creatures that are in the water, you may eat these. Any of the creatures in the water that have fins and scales, you can eat those, whether it lives in the waters or in the seas or in the rivers. But any creatures that don't have fins and scales, whether in the seas, rivers, 
among all the creeping creatures in the water and among all the living creatures that live in the water are an abomination for you. So do you like catfish? And they shall be an abomination for you. You shall not eat of their flesh and their dead bodies. You shall behold, you shall hold an abomination. Any creature that doesn't have fins and scales in the water is an abomination for you. Now the flying animals, the animals of the air. Among birds, you shall hold these in abomination. They shall not be eaten. They're an abomination. The eagle or the griffin vulture, the kite, the osprey, the kestrel, and the vulture after its species, and the raven after its species, the ostrich, the jay, the sparrowhawk, the, the gushhawk the, uh, after its species. Some of these, I, I, I didn't retain which ones, but some of these are extinct now of these animals. And they are indigenous to the area, to the area where, where Israel was moving across the wilderness. The owl, the gull, the little owl, the bat, the starling, the magpie, the stork, the heron after its species, the, the hoopah, the atalef, and the bat. Boy, this one's real hard. That's, that's a flying animal, but it's, you know, it's, it's a mammal. Anyway, apparently, the best translation here is bat. And who among us doesn't want wings for... Guy was in Vietnam. I was in college with, and he said, "Yeah, he said I used to really enjoy eating the uh, at the restaurants, the local restaurants in Vietnam when we get to leave or something. And they would they had wings on the menu, so I always ordered wings until I saw that they unfolded once, and then they unfolded again. <laughs> they were bat wings." Winged insects, any flying insect that walks on four is an abomination for you. However, among all the flying insects that walk on four legs, you may eat from those that have jointed leg, extensions above its regular legs with which they hop on the ground like a locust, a grasshopper. From this locust category, you may eat the following, the red locust after its species, the yellow locust after its species, the spotted gray locust after its species, and the white locust after its species, but any other flying insect that has four legs is an abomination to you. Well, mama, what are we having for supper? Well, our appetizer is a red locust and then we're gonna have yellow locust and spotted gray locust for the main meal and then white locust for dessert. Any kind of locust is okay. What about touching a carcass? And through, and through these you will become unclean. Anyone who touches their dead bodies will be unclean until evening. And anyone who carries their carcass shall immerse his, his garments and he shall be unclean until evening. Now, land animals. An animal that has a cloven hoof, not completely split, which doesn't bring up its cud, it's unclean for you. Anyone who touches them shall be unclean. And among all the animals that walk on four legs, any animal that walks on its paws is unclean for you. Anyone who touches their carcass will be unclean until evening. And one who carries their carcass shall immerse his garments and he will be unclean until evening. They are unclean for you. 
Then the swarming creatures. This is unclean for you among creeping creatures that creep on the ground. The weasel, the mouse, mm. the toad after its species, hedgehog, the chameleon, the lizard, the snail, the mole. These are the ones that are unclean for you among all creeping creatures. Anyone who touches them when they are dead will be unclean until evening. If, and if any of these dead creatures falls upon anything, it will become unclean. Whether it's any wooden vessel, garment, hide, or sack, any vessel with which work is done, it shall be immersed in water, but remain unclean, but will remain unclean until evening, and it will become clean. Any earthenware vessel into whose interior any of them falls, whatever is inside it shall become unclean, and you shall break the vessel itself. Of any food that is usually eaten upon which water comes will become unclean and any beverage that is usually drunk which is in any vessel shall become unclean and anything upon which any of their carcasses of these animals fall, this all has to do with the, the carcasses of these creatures, will become unclean. Thus an oven or a stove shall be demolished. They're unclean and they shall be unclean for you. But a spring or a cistern, a gathering of water, remains clean. However, one who touches their carcass shall become unclean. And if of their carcass falls, and if of their carcass falls upon any sowing seed which is to be sown, it remains unclean, it remains clean. But if water is put upon seeds and any of their carcass falls on them, they're unclean for you. What about edible animals? If an animal that you normally eat dies, one who touches its carcass shall be unclean until evening. And one who eats of its carcass, now we're not talking, I mean, you know, you're not going to eat a cow while he's living, right? You might have a hard time doing that. But if it's dead and there its carcass is, that's, that dead thing is an unclean thing. And one who eats of its carcass shall immerse his garments and he shall be unclean until evening. And one who carries its carcass shall immerse his garments and he shall be unclean until evening. A tanner of hides was, you know, Simon the tanner in the New Testament. His, his job was considered to be an unclean thing. I mean, people, Jewish people bought hides from him. But the process of tanning the hides was, was considered an abominable thing by the Pharisees in the, in the New Testament. Of course, Peter at one time had to engage uh, Simon uh, the Tanner. Okay, moving on here. Swarming creatures. Any creeping creature that creeps on the ground is an abomination. It shall not be eaten. Any creature that goes on its belly, any creature walks on its four legs to any creature that has many legs among all creeping creatures that creep on the ground, you shall not eat for they an abomination. You shall not make yourselves abominable with any creeping creature that creeps. <laughs> Okay, and you shall not defile yourselves with them, that you should become unclean through them. Now, for I'm the Lord your God, I am Yahweh Elohim. Now this is, why are these rules given? Because he's God and he can give them if he wants to. As a matter of fact, several, I won't say many, but several of these animals weren't that bad, uh, they were readily eaten by all of those who lived in the area. 
But Yahweh says to his people, you can't eat these particular things. For I am the Lord your God, and you shall sanctify, sanctify yourselves and be holy, be separate, be different, because I am holy. Now the Lord gives the reason here why there's a list of unclean creatures. For I am Yahweh who has brought you up from the land of Egypt to be like Elohim, to be your God. Thus you shall be holy because I am holy. Now the last part, the last two verses, the conclusion, this is the law regarding animals, birds, all living creatures that move in water and all creatures that creep on the ground to distinguish between the unclean and the clean and between the animal that may be eaten and the animal that may not be eaten. So we stop it right here for just a second. God says, I'm the Lord, your God. And you are my people. I'm holy. Therefore, I am separating you from the other peoples and you shall be separated. You shall be holy. And you shall be distinguished from other nations because of your lifestyle, because of the law. This is the law. I've given you the law and you are to obey the law. And obedience to the law distinguishes you from other nations. This law which distinguishes between the unclean and the clean. An animal that can be eaten, an animal that may not be eaten. Interpreters and scholars through the centuries have really actually had, had a hard time, as I said earlier, translating and defining exactly the animals. They had an idea and a, and a subset, but they could, not, they could not come exactly in some of the cases of the, of the wording of the animals they could not come to an exact translation of the exact animal. And there's, there's been, in the post-Old Testament era, when Old Testament classic Hebrew was put to rest as an active language, of course, the rabbis and certain other Orthodox people maintained the language in a sense, but it was so easy because Aramaic is also written from, from right to left. Now you have to study a little bit of Hebrew to understand that there are uh, four or five different ways to write a Hebrew letter. You look at it real close, you say, well, it's the same letter. But it's not like, you know, this is, this is the font over here on the right. This is the font that I recognize the easiest. There are other fonts of Hebrew, but this is how, this is the way sort of that I learned it. And it's easier for me to look at than some of the other fonts. Some of the other fonts I have to look at a little bit. Oh, okay, I see what that is. Same way, going back way back into time, as the post-Old Testament era moved into Koine Greek, only a handful, relatively speaking, would be able to grasp and hold on to certain definitions and certain meanings. 
But across time, the def not the word, the word's always the same, it never changes. But the definition um, of exactly what kind of animal was being discussed uh, became debatable over hundreds of years of time. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm saying all that to say in this day and for God's people, those, those rules are irrelevant. You can go home and have a worm sandwich if you want to. You're not going to be condemned. You won't have to go wash your clothes and all that kind of stuff. It's different today than it was back then. But there's a reason why God does this to his people at that point in time. And the reason, the principle behind it is what is applicable to you and to me today. So let's consider. The first thing to take note of is this. In all of the world, in all of the people of the world, God's people are different. We're unique. We have the word of God and we have the spirit of God in the New Testament in the church era. We have the Holy Spirit living in us and the word of God speaks to us. And we can commune with God through prayer and God enlightens us as to his word in ways from time to time that we've, you know, I've never seen it that way. I've never thought about that verse before. Well, that's the Holy Spirit growing us uh, in our faith. That we can read the Bible. That we can look into this world and say this world cannot last much longer because the word of God teaches that it can't last much longer. That we can do that makes God's people today unique from all the other people. I read, for example, the prophecies of the second coming of Christ. And I think of how the Bible has warned us that at the, at the close of the age, the nations will seek to be in a global order with a single leader who would be the Antichrist. And that the religions of the world will begin to amalgamate and they'll come under one leader, the false prophet. And so you see, even those within Christendom trying to blend themselves with other so-called monotheistic religions, for example, or you see the leaders of the world trying to make the whole world the same in response and, and in economy and all this. And you know, you sit around and you think, well, don't these people know what they're doing? Don't they know that the Bible tells us that this is bad, this is the end of time, and that when all of this finally happens, this will bring about the destruction of the known world, and they are racing to accomplish these things that are diametrically opposed to the way the people of God are supposed to do things? Well, they don't, they, they, that's because God's people are unique. The Bible doesn't mean anything to them. They can read the Bible and it doesn't speak to them because they're dead. That's why the world is rushing headlong into the close of the age. And that's why God's people are concerned for the world and yet have a happy joy about the soon coming of the Lord. We're unique. God's people are different. One thing that made them different is the fact in, in the Old Testament is the fact that God gave Israel his law. He didn't give it to anybody else. 
He gave it to Israel. And he was saying to Israel, your obedience to this law will show the rest of the world that you are my people, that you are unique and you're different. So what we see in, the, in, in God's people being different is, first of all, God's presence is perpetually with his people. Always. The true church of the living God come together with the same fundamentals of the faith. We may disagree on minor points. Points that are not essential for salvation. But there are things that we understand and know and stand on them. And it's those principles really that we're being, that we're watching being developed in, in the ministry of John the Baptist as John the Apostle gives it to us. We've been studied, studied it today, looked at it last time. These essential elements of Christian faith. This is where the church is. And these are the things that make us distinct for the church to say there's only one way to be saved. There's only one way for God to be present in your life. There is no other way. You cannot know God apart from his Christ. And so the world works against that. Satan in the world works against that by trying to depict believers and the true church and the gospel preaching church as bigots, hate mongers, uh, you know, all the other popular politically correct terms that are used to condemn Bible-believing people. When the, when the absolute opposite is true, no one could show more love to this world than the church to reveal to the world that we are sinners and that we, we cannot escape the flames of hell unless we are in Christ. And the fact that we stand up and do this, even to the spite of the world, means that the Spirit of God is moving us and that there's something beyond who we are marching us onward in this, in this special work. And it is for us, just like His presence was seen in His people by their obedience to the law, His presence is seen in us and are doing the best we can to obey the gospel, to be obedient to the, to the great commission, and to do everything that we can do to cry out to the world and proclaim Jesus Christ as Savior. God's people are also different because we are a peculiar people. Now, coming out of Egypt, other nations came against Israel. If the Lord gives us the time and gives us the opportunity, we will be in the book of Numbers. The book of Numbers is a lot of war and, and um, a lot of attack by the enemy. So the people of God are peculiar in that day being seen, for example, by the pillar of fire. The, the, the glory of, of God 
defending his people, leading his people, and protecting them until they could get together and become an army. Still always peculiar, marching through the wilderness, even into Canaan, they could not live with the other people, and the other people could not live with them because they were God's peculiar people, and the world hated them. The world couldn't agree with the law that had been given to Israel. The world couldn't agree to the reality of one true and living God who created everything. They couldn't, they had their own gods and goddesses and it would take away too much of their culture, too much of their fun. And they were just in the darkness of unbelief. But God has a peculiar people that are surrounded by the other people of the world who are not part of this group. And that is because God makes a difference. And that difference, of course, is our belief in the true and living God, our faith in Him, and our understanding of the relationship, and our understanding of how He can't be approached unless we first acknowledge our sin and then fellowship and communion are established through, through offerings and sacrifices and so forth. That's something other people didn't get to be part of. So different because of we're God's peculiar people and different because God providentially preserves us. Let's say, and I of course don't believe this, but let's say that this world kept going for another 10,000 years. That's an, that's an awful thought to have. But suppose it did. In 10,000 years from now, if the world still existed, there would still be the people of God, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. I get this stuff all the time. I'm subscribed to stuff and I get stuff and I get the information. Oh, you know, the, the church, we're in the post-Christian era. The church is diminishing and all this kind of stuff. There are a lot of things that I can see as a student of the scripture. Number one is that we are at the end of the Gentile era. It's obvious. Gentiles exponentially are withdrawing from Christianity. It's, it's very obvious. The Lord Christ taught us that truth. That the times of the Gentiles would come to an end. We know this. We preach as far and as wide and as strong as we can. But we know that God is sovereign and providential and he is calling his own to himself. And someday there will be a last one in the times of the Gentiles. I don't know when that's going to be. Maybe for, before the night's over. But when the last of the Gentiles come, then the church is raptured and the first resurrection of the saints and the 70th Shabbat, the 70th seven year period begins. Terrible, terrible things begin to happen. We can see the, 
we can see the beginning, the preface, the precursor to these things today. I've watched, we know that people have gone wild in certain cities in our country. I saw how the population of Cuba is unleashed in anger and rebellion. South Africa, even in France and other places, people are angry and they protest. This is, this is an introduction to the breaking of the second of the seven seals, the second of the four horsemen. When the common people go crazy in the world and they kill each other right after the Antichrist is revealed in the first seal broken. And then the third seal, here comes the armies to put it all down. The difference between a, a chromfea and a makada, a man's common dagger and the sword of the army. We're seeing bits and pieces of that already. It's nothing like it's going to be. But an angry mob that somehow finally finds consolation in anybody but Christ, the Antichrist. So we know that we've been preserved and we know that God is sovereign. He's providential. And we know that we are different And we know that God gives us his word in the case of Israel. He gave them his law. And in the case of this particular chapter, he gave them the law so that they could be seen as his people. And today, we have his word and we rest on his word and we look for the coming of the Christ. And we consider that the very fabric of society is being ripped apart. Genderism, crazy stuff. And the list could go on from there. But God providentially preserves his own people. He did the same in the Old Testament as he does today for his church. So let me make three sub points about the difference of God's people with regard to what we just looked at in Leviticus 11. The clean and unclean food, animals. Three reasons are suggested as to why God gave this list of clean and unclean food, animals, land animals, water animals, flying animals, crawling, creeping beasts. Number one is the reason that we would call cultic reasons, that is to say, A study of history in that era reveals that some of these animals were seen as deity, as, as types of deity. They were seen as very special in pagan worship. And so perhaps among the reasons would be the cultic reason that God said, you know, those people think that they have to eat those things and worship those things, but not you. You stay away from that. You are not who they are. I am your God. At this moment, I'm not their God. They have other gods and goddesses. 
Secondly, hygienic reasons. Dr. S. I. McMillan wrote a book some years back called None of These Diseases. And it was talk about, talking about diseases that people would no longer have that they could have had in Egypt. But when they came out of Egypt and they were given this list of what to eat and what not to eat, much of what they were given, much of what they were forbidden from eating would have presented problems of hygiene in that day, in that environment, and it could have caused diseases that could have run rampant through, through the nation of Israel. So it might be that a second reason would be hygienic reasons. You're not going to eat these things because out here traveling in the desert, it can be bad for you, it can even kill you. So maybe a reason is hygienic reasons. But the third, and to me, the strongest of the reasons would be symbolic. God says to his people, I'm holy, you will be holy. I'm separating you from the rest of the world. And I am going to forbid certain things from you as my people that the rest of the world will never stop indulging. I will show them through the law and your obedience that you are different. There are, there, there are things you won't eat. It won't mean anything. It'll confuse everybody else. All the other nations of the world will not understand, but you will understand because I will have established boundaries and the threat of death. Some of this, and we're going to be in this clean and unclean thing through chapter 15. Some of these things could even be deadly. It's not just like, you know, you're unclean until the nighttime. It can even cost a person his life. Whatever God does for us, he does graciously. God always reacts to us, or not reacts to us, but acts upon us because of grace. And it is his grace that moves God to give Moses the law so that the law will show the rest of the world that his people are different. That God has a people, he has a plan, he has a program. And that program of God is unstoppable. These are just a few of the things that we reflect upon when we study something like Leviticus 11. To make the world see that we are the people of God and God has taught us in his word that we're just not like the rest of the world. And the spirit then moves us to be obedient and that makes a difference in the, in the Christian era, in the New Testament time, in the church age, that makes a difference in the world when people see true Christianity being enacted in the world. It is its own sermon within itself. Well, we'll stop there and let's pray we'll be dismissed. Father God in heaven, thank you for your word. 
for calling us out from the world, from giving us your help, and for building us up and preserving us as only you can do. Father, we are humbled and thankful. Teach us your ways. Continue, Lord, to work in our lives that we might grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.